Paul is not teaching that the way to salvation is through self-sacrifice and denial. There's nothing you can do ever to merit heaven. But he is teaching that the proof of salvation, as we will see in just a moment in the parallel statement, the evidence that you are born again, in that in some sense you are willing to die to yourself for the cause of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of 2 Timothy, the epistle penned by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy of Lystra. In our passage from chapter 2, verses 7 to 13, we've seen so far that as believers, Christians will face persecution. Whether it's verbal or physical, suffering will be in the life of a true born-again Christian. Yesterday, Pastor Brogy addressed the fact that the suffering faced by Paul allowed for an opportunity to share salvation with others. As we pick up today, we see that Paul's suffering also provided the means to secure salvation. His suffering provided the means to secure salvation. Now that may sound rather heretical at first, but follow what the Apostle Paul says. Paul is saying that there is a relationship between my suffering and the gospel. But what he is making here is not simply a comparison. I'm chained and the word of God is not. He takes it beyond that. It's not simply that he was given an opportunity to share Christ, but his sufferings became the means to secure people's salvation. Look at verse 10. For this reason... I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul is saying the elect, the chosen, will hear the gospel because I am willing to suffer. Now, Paul is not saying that his suffering somehow was vicarious, that somehow propitiated a holy God because only the blood of Jesus Christ can pay for sin. But Paul is reminding these dear saints that because he was willing to suffer, because he was willing to suffer hardship, men and women and boys and girls were finding Jesus Christ. I have a friend who serves in Tibet. I led him to Christ when he was at Duke University, and he's ministered there for the last 14 and a half years under deplorable conditions. Lives what I would call a block house at 9,000 feet to be able to relate to the Tibetan people. But he's willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. There are missionaries all over the world who die to self daily, who give up so many of the pleasures that we enjoy. And if you want to be effective for Jesus Christ, you too must suffer. This past week I was speaking to a couple who had come to faith in the last couple of years. They told me that every weekend they used to gather all their friends and go out and get drunk. But when they met Jesus Christ, they got on the wagon, so to speak, that their testimony might be above reproach, and the phone stopped ringing. But there were a few who still called, because they were interested in the changes that was taking place in this family for good. 
And they could see the effect it had on the children. Listen, if you want to be effective for Jesus Christ, there is a cost. It might be that the phone stops ringing. Young people, it might be that you're not invited to the parties anymore. That people ignore you, that they ostracize you, that they say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of our Lord. But it's the pathway to preaching the gospel. And so here's Paul. By his own example, he is teaching us the same principle that blessing comes through suffering. But he's not finished yet. There's the experience of Christ. There's the experience of Paul. But there's also the experience of all Christian believers in suffering. Look at verse 11. Notice how it begins. It is a trustworthy statement. Now Paul is about to quote from a first century hymn that is so theologically accurate that God puts the stamp of approval upon it and includes it in the canon of Scripture. There's so much trash Christian music out there, I am just blown away by it. And Christians who buy it up by the handful, music that quite often is theologically inaccurate. But there's some good Christian music out there too, sound theologically. But as far as I know, this is the only hymn that ever made it into the canon of Scripture. God obviously liked this hymn. And what I want you to see is how these two epigrams, these two general truths, speak to Christian life and experience. The first pair applies to a believer. The second pair applies to an unbeliever. The first pair applies to those who are true and who are willing to endure the second pair applies to those who are false and who are faithless. And I learned two things from this experience of Christian suffering. First, if we are faithful, we will be blessed. If we're faithful, we will be blessed. Now look, if you will, at the first pair of parallel statements. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul is reminding us that the Christian life is a life of dying and a life of enduring. It is only as we share in Christ's death that we will share his life. If we die with him, we will live with him. Do you want to live with Christ? Then you must die with Christ. Do you want to reign with Christ? Then you must endure for Christ. And a true Christian one who is genuinely born again, will not be like those people that Christ described in the parable of the sower. Remember that one bunch in Luke 8, 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. You know, sometimes you preach the gospel and some unsaved people get excited about it. There's a smile on their face. Truth brings joy to their hearts. But Jesus said these have no firm root. They believe for a while in time of temptation, fall away. They believe, but their belief is only intellectual. It's never touched the heart. It's the same kind of faith that Jesus describes of demons. They believe, yet they tremble. It's the same kind of so-called faith that Peter describes of Simon the sorcerer, where it says he believed, but then in the next statement he says, you are in the gall of iniquity and the bitterness of sin. Intellectual only, having never touched the heart. Now understand, there are people here this morning 
that are saved and that are lost. And most of us, I think, would claim to be born-again Christians. Some of us are here, and we're exploring, and we're considering what the Bible has to say. And I'm so glad you're here, and you're welcome. The Lord wants you here, and He wants you with your own mind to think through the issues of the Bible and as they relate to eternal life. But there are some who have already made a profession. They say they are saved, but we will never know until the time of judgment. Because Jesus said the wheat and the tare will be mixed together until he comes again. We won't know until he comes again. I can't read a person's heart. All I can go is by what they say. But some people, it's no mystery. Some people come. They get excited. There's joy. They believe for a while. It's intellectual only. But when tough things happen, when they're ostracized and mocked for standing for Christ or, or the call to discipleship is laid before them, they fall away. In the parallel text, he said, the one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. By the way, this is what the Protestant reformers referred to when they spoke of the perseverance of the saints. They were not simply speaking to the doctrine of eternal security, though the Bible clearly teaches that, that if you are truly saved, that once you are saved, you're saved forever. But if you are saved, you're changed, and you're changed forever. That is, you will persevere to the end. And that's what our Lord is saying here. That these in this parable who give evidence to the fact that it was not a real faith is seen by the fact that they do not persevere to the end. Reigning through suffering, living through dying. That's the essence of the true Christian experience, which of course forces us to ask a question. If we've been saved, what does it mean to die to Jesus Christ? Well, of course, in Scripture, it's used in two ways. One positionally, the other experientially. Positionally, Romans 6 says, we all have union with Christ, those of us who've been saved, that when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he was raised, I was raised. That I am totally identified with him. But Paul, in this context, is speaking experientially. Much like our Lord says when he said a man must take up his cross daily, die to self, and follow him. And this was important for Timothy to hear because he was naturally shy. His tendency was to shrink back from hardship. And he needed to share in suffering as a believer. Paul, when he wrote the Corinthians, spoke in this experiential way. When he said, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord, I die daily. He told this group that he was always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. So there is a sense, understand, positionally, you have died with Christ, but experientially, you will also die with Christ. Now, I understand that some Christians do it more passionately than others, where they say no to their old sin nature and yes to Christ. 
None of us do it perfectly. If we did, Paul would not have to give the command that he gave in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. But on the other hand, while he exhorts all Christians to walk by the Spirit, that you won't follow the promptings and temptations of your sinful lower nature... There's a sense in which all true Christians die to self because in the same breath, he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we've died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. The only way to reign is to endure. The only way to live is to die. Now, please understand, don't misunderstand me. Paul is not teaching that the way to salvation is through self-sacrifice and denial. There's nothing you can do ever to merit heaven. But he is teaching that the proof of salvation, as we will see in just a moment in the parallel statement, the evidence that you are born again in that in some sense you are willing to die to yourself for the cause of Jesus Christ. The road to death ultimately leads to life. So first, I learn that if we're faithful, we'll be blessed. Secondly, if we are faithless, we will be denied. If we're faithless, we'll be denied. Now notice the next pair of axioms. Gird up your mind here. Pay attention. If we deny him... He will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, this second pair of, of statements really illustrates the real choice that non-Christians make. The first phrase, if we deny him, he will also deny us, echoes precisely what Jesus Christ said. Whoever denies me before man, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. Now, of course, all of us can remember the episode of Peter when Peter denied our Christ on that night three times. But understand, that was an episode in his life. That was not the tenor of Peter's life. And understand, too, that was a pre-Pentecost experience, not a post-Pentecost experience. Under the old covenant... Believers had a relationship with the Spirit of God, but they were not indwelt by the Spirit of God. The promise of the new covenant is God would take our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And when a man is born from above, the Spirit of God comes to indwell you, and you have a new affinity for the things of God and a new power to carry out the desires of God. That's why under the Old Testament, some of those saints could get away with some things that God would never let his people get away with. David had four wives. Solomon had a bunch more. Those people wouldn't even be considered Christians under New Covenant standards. Adulterers have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But what God allowed under the old covenant because of the hardness of man's heart, he would never allow any of his children to get away with today. So after Pentecost, Peter has a new heart and with authority he stands up and he tells those Jews and Gentiles that you deny the holy and righteous one of Israel. Likewise, John could write, he came to his own 
And his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them he has given the power, the right, the authority to be children of God. And so the gospel is still offered to men. And if they receive it, they are saved. If they do not receive it, they have no access to heaven because there is salvation in no one else. Now, if we deny him, he will deny us. Let's keep reading. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How do we take this second phrase? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, this verse has been taken by some Christians as a comforting assurance that even if we turn away from Christ, he will not turn away from us. That if we are faithless, God will remain faithful to us. And that is certainly a biblical truth. It is true that when we sin, God doesn't stop loving us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He doesn't desert us. Nothing can snatch us out of His hand. But that's not what this verse is teaching. That's not the tenor of this verse, nor does it fit the logic of this hymn. Because you find here two pairs of balancing phrases, which really demands a different interpretation. Notice, if we deny Him... And if we are faithless, those are parallel expressions which demands he will deny us and he remains faithful. That demands that those two be parallel as well. In this case, the faithfulness of God in this context deals with the unbeliever. Just like the unbeliever who denies Christ, Christ will deny him. Just like the unbeliever who by the tenor of his life is faithless, God will be faithful to his promise to visit them with his wrath. He that believes not, the wrath of God abides upon him. And God says here, he cannot deny himself. Now that's an interesting phrase. Because the Bible teaches that there are some things that God cannot do. Let's make sure that our understanding of the omnipotence of God is not that he can do absolutely anything because he cannot. There are some things that even God cannot do. The Bible says, for instance, it is impossible for God to lie. God can't lie. God can't sin. He's immutable. He can't renege his promises. You know, these Cocky unbelievers come to you sometimes trying to trip us up. Well, you know, if your God is all-powerful, can he make a rock that is so big that he can't pick up as if to throw us off and to get us twisted in our faith? No, God can't make a rock that is so big he can't pick it up because God always acts according to his nature and according to his character. And God only chooses to do those things that are consistent with his character, his nature, and that brings glory to himself. And God reminds us in these parallel expressions, the first two of a believer, the second two of an unbeliever, that if we are faithless, God will be faithful. He cannot go back in his promises. God promises to send his wrath on those who will not believe. Now, as I look over the first half of this chapter, there are two major applications that scream back at me. I don't know about you, but two I just couldn't get away from. Number one, first, I'm reminded that the pathway to effective Christian service is hard work. 
The pathway to effective Christian service is hard work. Again, the notion that Christian service is hard, sweat, blood, labor is not a popular thing in this day of feel-good Christianity. You turn on the television and you watch these preachers and they tell you it's God's will for you to be healthy, wealthy, happy. And then if you're not, it's just your lack of faith. You meet other Christians who are just lazy. I mean, they just want to come and be entertained. They don't really have any desire or notion of ever getting involved in God's church anywhere. And some of them say, God bless me. I meet lazy preachers on occasion. God bless my church. God can't bless a church where the preacher or the people are lazy because God doesn't go against his own principles. Here's Paul who gave and he did not despise the cost. Here's Paul who fought and he didn't take heed to the wounds. He suffered like a dedicated soldier. He ran like a law-abiding athlete. He toiled like the hard-working farmer. And without that kind of dedication, we can never expect results. And if we're lazy as Christians, and we can be, you see, that's our tendency. Our fallen nature wants to be as lazy as it would dare to be. If we're lazy, we will miss out. Not in heaven, not if you've been saved. But you will miss out on what is really living. And we live in a day of lazy Christians. Second, not only am I reminded that the pathway to effective Christian service is hard work, I also am reminded that the pathway of blessing comes through pain. It's a theme that runs all the way through this chapter, and of course we're not done yet. We see it in the first three secular analogies of the soldier, of the athlete, of the farmer. But we also see it from spiritual experience as seen in Christ, Paul, and in all true Christians. Paul has been hammering home the truth that blessing comes through pain, that fruit comes through toil, that life comes through death, and that glory comes through suffering. And so why should we believe differently here in this 21st century? Why should we expect that it will be easy when God says it sometimes will not? No cross, no crown, no rules, no wreath, no pain, no gain. It was the principle that took our Lord to the cross. It was the principle that allowed Paul to suffer hardship in sleepless nights, in shipwrecks, in sufferings, in beatings, in hunger, in pain. I see Christians today who want God to bless them, but they're not willing to work hard or suffer. You say a little something about their ministry. Someone criticizes them in the church, and they're gone. I quit. They take their marbles and they go home. I come in here at 7 o'clock every Sunday morning. I see all these men up there. Week after week after week. They're willing to pay a price. But so many of God's people won't pay any price. 
Now, the most fearful thing is to think you're saved and not be. Our Lord said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? He said, many will say to me, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. But he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. The appeal in the Bible is never to make Christ as your Savior. The appeal is for Jesus Christ to become your Lord. The first word that fell off of the lips of Christ during his public ministry was repent. The first word that John the Baptist preached was repent. Peter, what must we be, do to be saved? Repent. Metanoia, change your mind. There's a throne in your heart, and you must decide who will rule in it. And God's appeal to you and to me is to embrace Christ as your Lord, as your master, as your king. And when you're willing to embrace him as your king, he is glad to become your savior and to forgive you of every blot, stain, and blur that you've ever committed. Have you ever made that kind of a decision for Christ? I invite you to do it today. Let's stand together. Now, our Father, I thank you this morning for the truth of your word, which is alive. Help us in this day of casual Christianity not to be taken in by teaching that is not consistent or found anywhere in your word. I thank you for the men and women in this fellowship and for our missionaries all over the world that serve our Savior who are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Help us, our Father, never to shy back when things are difficult, but to persevere and to press on, believing you and trusting you for the purposes that you have for us. Father, I pray today for someone here who's never found Christ and they do not have the assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that they would go to heaven. Some who may even with their lips profess to know him, but by their life and their deeds, they deny him. Help them today in faith to call upon him, to trust him. Father, I thank you that even though when we are inconsistent, you are always ready as a father who loves us to be faithful and just, to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank you that such unchanging love and grace motivates us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously and holy in this present age. May you accomplish in your church the things that would please you. May your people... May this fellowship be so distinctively different from the world that men would see our good deeds and you, our Father, might be glorified. And we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Today's message, The Cost of Suffering in Christ, is available on CD or DVD. Just call 877-787-7478 and request program 2TM4. You can visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and view our complete list of resources available for ordering or downloading. And when you contact us, be sure to ask about becoming a foundation partner. It is through the prayers and finances of listeners like you that we're able to continue to share solid biblical teaching on stations throughout the United States. 
Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, Dr. Berge will continue his study out of 2 Timothy 2 and look at how we can be of use to the Master. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.